0: Well, we're so thankful we have Transit joining us for this series, Be Rich. So Transit is our 6th through 12th graders. We're so thankful you guys are jumping in. So our our, our hope is this, is that you have really good Jesus-centered conversations with your parents, maybe today, maybe this week, or maybe for the next three weeks. And parents, we hope that you have the same type of conversations with your kids. You ask them, and this is a really neat thing that we're doing. We think it's a good thing that we're doing, that everyone's sort of on the right track, and align together, and so over the next three weeks, we hope that you guys have some really good, solid, positive, Jesus-centered conversations. So today, I really want to ask this question. Are you asking the right questions? Are you asking the right questions? When your world seems to be upside down, the things that you've planned for have not gone the way that you've wanted them to go, how do you react? How do you respond? And what type of questions do you ask? I know for some of us, when we've seen uh, events that have been breathtaking, that have changed our world, like the pandemic or like 9-11, we begin asking questions like, is this the end of the world? Or what do we do for God to allow this to happen? Uh, Did we do something wrong? And if we did something wrong, is there something we can do to undo it? Uh, To get God to change his mind, uh, take away the virus, um, take away terrorism. Is there something that God can do? Uh, that we can do for God to do. And we spent some time responding to some of those questions in the end series about five months ago. But I want to ask you, when life is not going the way that you want it to go, how do you typically respond? What are the questions that you're asking? Are you asking the right questions? So let me ask an important, and it's going to be a personal question. Why do Americans have such a low pain threshold? I'm serious. Why do Americans have such a low pain threshold? We really do. I mean, including me. uh, We have this low tolerance for discomfort. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. We don't want to be in uncomfortable situations. We don't have a tolerance for that. Especially when it comes to truth and facts. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. We just want sort of everyone to believe what they want to believe, and everyone's comfortable. But think about this too: we have a low discomfort, uh, low tolerance for discomfort. I mean, how many of us like to be told no? How many of us believe that we have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want? And I think that's the downside with living in America: we are resource; we're protected. And sometimes we're blinded by what other human beings created in God's image are dealing with in their country. They're unprotected. They're living unresourced. For those who've traveled outside of the D.C. area, you traveled outside Virginia, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you went to Central America. Maybe you've been to the Middle East. Maybe you've been to Africa, parts of Africa. You know how bad that it is. is. And here's what I'm seeing, that our culture is becoming more rights than responsibility-driven. When individual rights are more important than personal responsibility, the end is near. Guess think about that. It is impossible to create a law system or a structure of laws necessary to enforce a peaceful coexistence. When everyone does what everyone wants to do, it's impossible to make sure peace exists. It's impossible. Like It can't be all about me and all about you all at the same time. Like Something has to give. Somebody has to give. Somebody has to surrender. A bit of personal freedom or chaos and anarchy will happen. Like, the notion of surrendering a little bit of personal freedom like strikes us as so un-American. But we do it all the time. I, I, think, of, I, think, I, I think of growing up. Growing up as a kid... My mom told me when we went to the park to take turns. There were three swings and there was like a dozen kids. My mom always taught me, make sure you give someone else a turn. That's giving up some of my rights to be responsible and allowing someone else to take a turn. We do it when we're at a four-way intersection. The person on your right goes first. If all four cars get to the intersection at the same time, who goes first? The one on your right. And you keep letting people go. Uh, Maybe, uh, how about this? Uh, I was in Aldi and I was getting one thing. I forgot something. I go, so I stopped at Aldi, got one thing. And so I'm in line, like I'm racing to get up in line. And then all of a sudden an older lady sneaks up in front of me and she has like a thousand things in her cart. And I have one thing. She looks at me and she looks at what I have. And she says to me, she says, is that all you have? Said so this is all that I have, and I'm looking at her cart, and she's like, "Well, tough luck." No I'm kidding. She says, "No, just go right in front of me." She was willing to let go of her right to go first and allowing me to go. It just makes sense, guys. Look, when you and I refuse to take responsibility for ourselves, we force someone else to take responsibility for our irresponsibility. And guys, that can only go on for so long. So remember when life falls apart, when your life falls apart, when things don't go as you have planned, what, what questions do you ask? What questions do you ask? What I love about the New Testament is it's so real. It gives us a history of what uh, the early church went through, what early Christians went through. And so let me give you the story of what happened before I tell you the story. So let me give you the backstory. Jesus dies. He is laid in the tomb. Three days later, he rises from the dead. His followers begin to tell the story that Jesus died for their sins, and through his resurrection, they have eternal life. So they're telling everybody, well, the Jewish leaders don't like it. So the Jewish leaders begin arresting and persecuting Jesus' followers. Turns out that they got so bad that they ended up killing one of his followers. His name was Stephen. Stephen was a great communicator. He was a powerful litigator of the faith. Um, So they put him on trial for blasphemy. So here comes Stephen, and he defends himself. And it was a great speech, and everything is seen in Acts 7 and Acts 8. If you have time to read it. Well, they don't like what he said. It was not a fair trial whatsoever. They take him outside the city gates, and they stone him. Stoning was a horrible way to die. In many cases, the victim didn't die immediately. They bled to death. And as they bled to death, animals would gather around to feast on their dead body. It was a horrible, horrible way to die. So notice what begins to happen next. This is Acts 8. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. So he believed that that sharing the gospel... That was a crime, and the punishment was execution. That's what he believed. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judah and Samaria, Judea and Samaria. Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in a prison. Think about this, guys. They could not meet legally. They could not meet safely. And then think about it. They were trying to rid themselves of a problem, the Jewish leaders. But what they did, they created a followless and parentless society. They're orphaning kids. I mean, you can't get any worse than this. I mean, so what happened to the church? I mean, if this happened in America, do you think the churches would begin closing? Like we just, if we can't meet legally, we can't meet safely. We might as well just close our doors. No, that's not what happened. Notice what happens next. But the believers were scattered. Their lives were disrupted. Maybe they lived in the home that they grew up in. Or maybe they, they they lived in a house that they built. They left a town that they grew to love. Their lives were disrupted. They were scattered into other parts. And what did they do? They preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. They saw this as a good thing. They didn't complain about it. They weren't wondering "What are the, if this is a sign of the times or a God who was mad at them. No, they made the most of it. They made the most of it. And so we're going to skip ahead to Acts 11. But before we do, there's a story in Acts 9 that is just really cool. And that's Acts 9 and 10. And that's the story of Paul. Paul, who was Saul. Yeah, the same guy who was okay with Stephen being executed. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Now think about it. It would be like the leader of the Taliban becoming a follower of Jesus, abandoning that lifestyle and becoming a follower of Jesus. That would be that radical, that shocking. And So here we go. In in Acts 11, Luke writes this. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, Assyria. So if you look at a map, you have Israel. If This is north and northwest of Israel. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Guys, that was a miracle within itself. You have Gentiles Who thought Jews were strange people? There was no way that they were going to come to a conclusion that a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi would be their savior. But they did. Incredible. So you have this large number of people becoming followers of Jesus. So the church in Jerusalem sends a guy by the name of Barnabas up to help teach. This is what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. Well, it's getting too much for him. Notice what Barnabas does. He goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. He's like, man, I I want Saul. I need him. So when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of the people. And you ever wonder where we get the word Christian? This is where we got it. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Guys, there's no indication when their lives were disrupted, when their lives were turned upside down, when their lives were at stake, instead of hunkering down, instead of getting mad at God, instead of blaming God, instead, what did they do? They lean into it and saw, okay, we're going to deal with this. We're going this is our new normal. we're going to deal with this and we're going to make the most of this. We believe. But this is for God's glory and for our good. Like when it couldn't get enough, right? They're disrupted. They're facing persecution. And Luke writes a little bit more. And he was like, there's one more thing that happened. When we think it can't get any worse, during this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This is a historical event. It's in the history books. And Luke is reminding, hey, you guys remember when things got really bad? Like we had to leave our homes. We were being persecuted. We were hiding. But yet, that didn't stop us from sharing the news that Jesus changes everything you remember how it got even worse? When we think it couldn't get worse, it got worse. He writes this. So the believers, instead of giving up, instead of quitting, instead of abandoning the cause, they decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church of Jerusalem. I mean, this is so easy to miss and impossible for us to appreciate. But Jerusalem and Damascus, they were about 300 miles apart, two different worlds. It was actually quicker for us to fly round trip to Australia than it would be back then to travel one way from Damascus to Jerusalem. They were um, two different cultures, two different groups of people, two completely different worlds. And Gentiles thought Jews were strange people. I mean, for them to give to a group of Jewish Christians was pretty incredible. Back then, it was the culture not to give without getting. You didn't give and expect nothing in return. No one did that back then. You did favors in hopes of getting favors. You gave in hopes of getting. They thought it was stupid to give without getting anything in return. So... What's so interesting, in ancient times, there was no category of this type of generosity until Jesus, when people began to understand the implications of the gospel. When we were presented with the gospel, Gentiles accepted that they had a sin that they could not pay back. They had a sin debt that they could not pay, that they sinned, and no matter how many good works that they did, it would never offset the balance. It was never going to be good enough. Yet God loved them, and He sent Jesus to pay their sin debt. And they recognize that they are to call—they are called to love others as God has loved them. They know that they are to do what God did for them. They are supposed to do that for others. So this new kind of generosity was called caritas, which is giving to relieve the physical or financial distress of others without expecting anything in return. So again, this year during Be Rich, we're able to do that. And we believe that Be Rich is sort of part of our answer in doing the same for our community. We call it Be Rich based on what Paul, formerly known as Saul, yes, that same guy that stood in front of Stephen and got knocked off his horse and met Jesus. Yeah, that guy. This is what he wrote to Timothy. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. Notice that Paul doesn't say or doesn't write feeling rich, but he writes, are rich. Guys, it's hard for us to see this as Americans, but the majority of Americans are rich by the world's standards. If you have a net worth of $93,000, and that means your assets minus your debts, that makes you richer than 90% of the world's population. That's a lot. If you have $4,000 to your name, you're still richer than half of the world's residents. What Paul is helping us understand is money is a means to help. Money is a means to help. That It's dangerous for us to trust the means over our maker. It's dangerous to trust the shoes that we have, the shoes that we get, or trust the, the clothes that we wear, or trust the money that we have in our accounts, or maybe the car that we drive, or the cars that we want to drive, or the house that we live in. He says, man, our trust should be in God who generally, pro- generously provides our needs so we enjoy this life. So let me ask you two questions. What would make a big difference for you? And what would help you make a big difference? And so we vetted a couple projects, and we're asking 100% of you to give to support these projects. Our goal is 100% participation, and we're giving 100% of it away. The good news is after four years, unlike the United States government, we are not increasing our price on this or adjusting for inflation. But like we have for the last three years, we are asking everyone to make a one-time gift of $39.95. So our hope is that if every family does this, if every family participates at that level of $39.95, we'll collect about $2,400, it's a big deal. And this year we're gonna be funding local women and children's home, a local women and children's home, a local mentoring and job transitioning program, and then supplies for 5,000 Afghan refugees at Quantico. Well, normally at this point, if those who are in person in the room, I usually have them go and they get on their phones and they give online well, this is what I want you guys to do this year. Uh, just go to your phone, pull out your phone. Now, if you're in transit, you have nothing to worry about here. You're actually going to break out in your small group, and you guys are going to talk about some questions we have that relates to you and the things that you're dealing with. For those of us who are adults, this is our opportunity to lead well, lead by example, uh, and let's show our communities that our faith is just more than sermons and songs. And that church is certainly is aware of how we can best support this community so on your mark get set be rich